0: This is the Arc Energy Ideas Podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the Arc Energy Ideas Podcast, our first podcast of 2019. I'm Jackie Forrest.
1: And I'm Peter Tertzakian. Happy New Year. Did you have a good one this year?
0: I did. Yeah, I was skiing. So, uh, beats a day in the office. No Absolutely. offense, Peter.
1: Yeah, no, <laughs> I was in the office. No, actually, we had a good New Year, good dinner, family, friends. It was really fun. Good. Really fun. But we're back. We're, pardon the pun, energized to go. So beyond being 2019, it is also the year of the...
0: Peg in the Chinese calendar, and it's certainly feeling that way.
1: It is. We've got a number of topics to talk about. Of course, we're going to talk about the international move in the oil prices, and that'll distill down into our Canadian oil and gas markets.
0: Yep. Then we'll talk about what that means for the outlook for activity levels here in Canada and some other recent news that we thought was worth highlighting. I do want to come back to the year of the pig, though. It does feel that way. But in China, pigs are a sign of wealth and fortune. So let's just hope that the Chinese version comes through this year, not the Western view.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, well, some people have been listening to our podcasts uh, exclusively just on our website, but you just have a different way of listening to things.
0: That's right. We posted something on our website about how to follow our podcast from your smartphone, which actually most of our users are are actually listening on their computers. And a, the smartphone has lots of advantages. You can multitask. I'm always listening to podcasts when I'm doing household chores or working out or driving in my car. And so we'll put the link to how to do that on the bottom of the show notes here.
1: Right. So we should get out of the 1990s is what you're saying.
0: Yeah. Get into the new mobile okay. age of, of audio on the go.
1: Good. Good. Well, international oil prices. What's going on there?
0: Okay, well, let's talk about West Texas Intermediate, which is the North American benchmark but follows the international price. It's kind of a bit of disbelief what happened here over the holidays that uh, prices just fell to uh, $42. That was quite a good Christmas Eve present when I looked at my phone and saw that. So a lot of disbelief, especially because I wrote a commentary December 11th saying that the cut should keep the price above 50 So obviously the markets didn't read my commentary. Now, my logic was that if OPEC made these cuts, the market should be pretty supplied and we would still need some growth from the U.S. So we should have a floor around 50 but the good news is, this week, price recovered to yeah. uh, above 50 So what's going
1: on? I mean, it's not just about the OPEC cuts. We've got economic chatter going on, too. There was a lot of concern about the trade relationship between China and the United States, the ongoing trade war that's been happening. And it really, over the holidays, hit sort of a peak negativity. And when you have these trade uncertainties, it really affects the market's perception about GDP and GDP relates to energy and oil consumption. And the perception was that that was really going south. Uh, That's reversed now.
0: Well, I don't know if it has, but yes, there's there's some trade negotiations going on between US and China. And there's a view that there will be some resolution to the trade war and more trade. But I, I just want to come back and say, you know, as an oil analyst, I don't see this demand issue as anything close to the supply issue. And the reason I would say that is most agencies, including the World Bank that just came out this week, think that economic growth in 2019 may be about 0.2% lower Mm -hmm. than 2018, and that China is still going to grow like, you know, over 6%, and that the advanced economies are going to be slightly impacted, like 0.1 or 0.2% down. And so when you look at this, there's not much of an impact to oil demand here.
1: No, that's the reality of the situation. And we talked about that in an earlier podcast uh, from last year. But the markets really do get concerned at any hint of economic slowdown on a global basis. And the oil prices always responded to that, which is why we call the oil business a cyclical business because the dominant cyclical driver is the economy. And so when there's negative pull on top of the economy, typically oil prices are quite reactive on the downside and vice versa. And so this ongoing saga of the trade war is really introducing volatility and then draped over that we have the saga on the supply side and the uncertainties of what OPEC is going to do or not going to do what the iran sanctions are going to do or not going to do and so on and so forth so it all adds up to pretty big price swings
0: well yeah and you know when let's talk about this OPEC deal so saudi you know, recognizing the price was sliding, has put out a lot of messaging in the yeah. last few weeks about these are real. One of the things is there was some doubts because there wasn't country-level targets that these would actually be mm-hmm. um, done. Now Saudi's actually maybe probably going to overcut. They're talking about having a cut that's almost as big as the whole OPEC cut here um, in January. Wow. And so I actually think these cuts are going to come in bigger than we think. The market's going to balance faster than we think. But I guess the market uh, right. has to see that.
1: Right. And so the price has responded favorably to that?
0: It has. and I, But I think, to your point, the biggest reason for the move this week might have been just news around this uh, U.S.-China right. trade war resolution and the potential mm-hmm. um, for the economy mm-hmm. not to be mm-hmm. as impacted.
1: So the price dropped, as we know, in the latter part of the year. Uh, very close to Christmas, as you said, into the low 40s. Did we see any sort of response in the United States in terms of the drilling activity? I mean, it was happened so quickly. But I mean, what, what, is, what is the sentiment in terms of U.S. activity and output production into 2019?
0: Well, right now, it's looking like the U.S. will still grow in terms of their spending next year, maybe you're in the range of 5 or 10%. But that's less growth than the previous year, where it was around 20%. Wow. Uh, so there's still any growth, but there is a view that the supply won't grow as much. But that's mainly of a function of infrastructure bottlenecks out of the Permian. Right. Um, so we're only expecting about a million barrels a day of growth out of the U.S. this year compared to something like 1.4 mm-hmm. in uh, 18. That's kind of entry to exit.
1: So there's a lot of moving parts here. And what is our Best expectation of what's going to emerge here, say in the first half of the year and the latter half of the year.
0: I'm going to stick with my view, assuming no other big surprises here. That price should stay above fifty dollars a barrel. I think OPEC will cut. I think that will mean that we do need to have prices that incent some supply growth from the U.S., which I believe we you know we need prices above fifty bucks to do that. So I think we should see a fair way that's fifty and above.
1: Fifty and above is a reasonable price, especially when you multiply it by the exchange rate here. In Canada. And so let's talk about the Canadian oil and gas markets. Obviously, the drama and trauma of what was happening in November, December with our price differentials was top of the news. And following the production curtailment announcement of the provincial government in mid-December, we have now seen the differential recover significantly.
0: Oh, yeah. Like the the differentials have been literally crushed. Uh, We had differentials for heavy oil, the difference between the crude price in Cushing, Oklahoma, WTI, and here in Canada at like $30 different for light crude. And uh, now that's like $3. And heavy oil used to be $50, and now it's like $9, like Big change.
1: Wow. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, let's talk with a light differential first. So, the, this would be our Edmonton light, our premium grade here. Typically, that would trade what?
0: It's typically uh, around four or five, and that basically that comes from just the quality of the two products, WTI and our LaCrude, are fairly similar. So that just covers the transportation cost to get between here and there. And so, actually, it's even more narrow than what would cover the transportation costs. Right. Um, so a little bit narrower than we've seen well, over the historical. So
1: that's good news. Almost normal, in fact, a little bit better than normal. And we have on the heavy side, you said we went from $50 down to $9. $9, $9 right $9. now on the spot market. Right, right. So what is, I mean, this is an area that I see of significant confusion. Now we have the uh, television reports and things, you know, talking about the Western Canadian select or this heavy oil differential narrowing and narrowing. There seems to be an expectation that it should narrow all the way to the West Texas intermediate price, but that's not where the normal average differential should be, is it?
0: No, no. Normally, it would be around $15 if you just look at the theory, and the theory would be look at the transportation cost, which I just talked about, uh, around $4 a barrel for a five, and then there's a quality difference. So our heavy oil from the oil sands is not the same quality as that light crude in Texas, and refiners actually have to spend a lot more money to— Turn it into refined products, so they right, pay less right, for right,
1: it. Right, right. So Western Canadian Select, by virtue of where it is and where it has to go to the transportation cost, plus the quality of where it is and where it has to be refined up to, means that it should be about fifteen dollars less than WTI.
0: Yeah, in theory. And so w- we're we're below that. So
1: we're nine dollars yeah. less. So right. we're actually getting a premium yeah. to where it should be.
0: Yeah. So I would say at this point, you know, in the near market, we actually right. have in the futures market a little bit wider differentials. But right, right. now, can't expect differentials right. better than this.
1: So they are so wide because the cuts are likely to be potentially more than expected, the 325000
0: That You know, I think that is what's going on here. It is a bit of a mystery why they're so narrow because we should still need some crude to leave the province by rail. But if the cuts were larger, then that would mean not as much rail and we could support these narrow differentials. And so I believe that the cuts will be a bit bigger than maybe what was initially put out there by the province of an 8.7% cut. We might see a larger cut and therefore we don't need as much rail and therefore we don't need the diffs to be as wide in the near term.
1: Right. So let's just review this. We've got 4 million barrels a day roughly of production. The province comes in to alleviate the glut, says you've got to cut by 8.7%, about 325,000 barrels per day off of the 4 million. As it turns out, the market and observers and analysts are looking at the situation and saying, oh, you know what? It might be actually greater than 325,000 that is going to be shut in by virtue of number dynamics. So therefore, our differentials have narrowed very quickly. In fact, have narrowed to the point where they're trading at a premium to where they should be.
0: That's right. Okay. That's right. Now, I don't think that's going to stick around for the whole year because the province has talked about slowly removing these curtailments, and you will need uh, rail, not just pipeline to move crude from Western Canada. And in order to support rail, you will need differentials that pay for the transportation costs, which is higher. So So, I don't think it's going to stick around forever. But the good news is even in the long term, you know, it's not $50 differential. If you look in the futures market out a year, you know, it's more like a $18 differential. So so it's a lot narrower than it was.
1: Yeah, it strikes me that they may actually relieve the curtailment sooner than later is what's probably might might happen here. I mean, it's it, this is not an exact science, right? I mean, it's a little bit like putting your hand on the on a radio dial, you know, turning it up and down and trying to find the right level. It's the same thing here. I mean, we've had such dislocations and disruptions in the Western Canadian oil markets that finding the right balance and getting that sense of balance back over the longer term is going to take some tweaking.
0: I think so and the the thing to watch will be these inventory levels right. and you know seeing that they start to draw down will be what everyone will be looking for.
1: Mhm. Mhm. Okay, well the as I said the drama and the trauma of November and December those extremely debilitating differentials which led to oil prices that were like $10 on the heavy, $20 on the lights did leave us with companies that all of a sudden completely shut their wallets and said, we're not spending anymore.
0: Yeah, and I don't blame them. When you've got that level of uncertainty in terms of uh, what your production might be right. with the talk of the curtailments, but also what you know how much cash you're going to have because the prices are very volatile, yeah. a lot of companies just choose to do nothing. And I think we're seeing that in terms of the activity rates as we come into the right, new year right. being much lower than they were the same right. time last year.
1: So we've got a little bit of a divergence here. We've got activity rates that are very low. We're coming into the year 2019, similar to 2016, which was a debilitating year where the price of oil had dropped to $35. So that is a little bit at odds with the most recent price movements with those differentials narrowing to premium levels, Mm -hmm. plus the top-line oil price recovering back to the $50 level or so. So there's a bit of a dislocation. So what are you hearing about the producers and if they're going to spend and start drilling again?
0: Well, you know, this is a year where picking the activity rate, which is something we love to do here at (laughs) ARK. Every year we like to figure out how many wells we might be drilling in the upcoming year. It's more challenging because we don't have, I think, that much guidance that we can rely on. Yes, a lot of companies have put out guidance, but it's quite dated and things have changed a lot. So I think there's some downside risk to it. If you look at the industry as a whole, a lot of the public companies, it might indicate that spending would be down about 10%. However, a lot of these are dated. If I look at the most recent big announcements, CNRL is saying they're going to spend about 20% less in 2019 compared oh, to 18. Yep. Yeah, and 7 Gen this week came out saying down 27% mm-hmm. uh, year on year. And so you know, I think the, those most recent ones are probably a little more reflective of what companies are thinking than some yeah. of the more dated ones.
1: Yeah, so what's actually being seen in the field in terms of the number of rigs that are active, which is... Quite low for this time of year. It's like 180 rigs or something like that. Yeah, 180.
0: 180. We would have had near 300 this time last year. So that's you know uh, 40 percent or so down. Right.
1: And the public company guidance, which typically came out after the end of the third quarter of last year, uh, is stale. That's right. And we are probably going to be waiting for the company guidance to come out after the board meetings that are going to happen over the course of the next few weeks.
0: So you're expecting that we real guidance from more of the companies might be revised February? Yeah, well, they
1: are going to be interesting boardroom discussions because, as I said, we've seen an improvement in pricing, both international and domestic. And that has to be paired against the general feeling of unease and uncertainty in the episode that we just came through, which was uh, quite severe in terms of the price shocks. So I think we're going to see cautious spending this year. I think that the CNRL, Seven gen and other companies that have issued uh, guidance very recently—you know—down twenty percent is probably not unrealistic. Certainly for the first half,
0: right? But and not then, the down the forty percent that we're seeing right now. N- no, you no, think no, gonna no, no. I think it's going to improve. I think it's going to improve, and yeah. I think
1: you know the the view you expressed on international oil prices potentially firming up a little bit into the second half of the year. Of course, that's much, very dependent upon economic outlooks and so on. But uh, the second half is probably going to look better than the first half. And by the way, in the second half, we'll also have more of that railroad stuff and longer-term remedies to the market access issue.
0: Right. So more spending, probably more weighted towards the second the half of the year, which is very half. different for Canada. Yeah. Usually, uh, like, a yeah. third of our drilling is in the winter. Uh, then this first quarter of the year, that's probably yeah. not going to happen this year. But we'll still probably see some spending
1: yeah. later yeah. on. I think that's what you're going to see.
0: Okay. Well, let's talk about some other news, uh, recent news, that's worth uh, highlighting. Uh In Canada this week, there was a lot of talk about this opposition to the LNG pipeline that is going to connect the gas fields in northeast BC with the LNG Canada project in Kitimat. And the news coverage was because... A First Nation group that is opposing the project has set up these barriers and we're not allowing construction workers. So 14 people are arrested. There was some protests in a number of cities across Canada about the removal of this blockade and a lot of press coverage. Now there was an agreement reached yesterday and the group will now take down these barriers and allow the construction Mm -hmm. workers access, although they don't support the project, they say still.
1: Yeah. This is a very complicated situation. You know, I've spent quite a bit of time in this area over the last several years on the pipeline trail, as I like to call it. And it, it's, it's really tough. And the problem is that there really isn't a defined rule of law. Now, I know from a Canadian perspective, there's rule of law and so on. But from the perspective of the First Nations, especially groups like the Wet'suwet'en, their perception of rule of law is very different from the national perception. And this leads to all sorts of problems. So, you know, one has to look at the situation sympathetically to a certain degree, but at the end of the day, leadership does have to emerge to resolve the situation. That's where we're at. But I think at the, at the root of it, you know, certainly what I learned when I was there is that engagement at a community level is so important by industry, by other stakeholders that wanna get these projects built. You have to develop the trust of the people along the way. And uh, it's a long-term proposition. Because it's, although the rule of law is one thing, of course, we're all human and we need to be able to establish commonality in terms of goals and so on. And I think clearly the protests show that that commonality has not been achieved.
0: Well, you know, the one thing I'll say is that, and this is just about the media coverage, I agree Mm -hmm. with you, Peter. But the, the media coverage, I think, made it sound like this sort of represents everybody But the reality is something like 25 First Nations have signed agreements with the pipeline company, the Coastal Mm -hmm. Link LNG Pipeline, which uh, TransCanada, but they have a new name this week.
1: TC Energy. Yeah,
0: TC Energy. Okay, well, that's a whole other topic. But um, they've got support from these groups. And even this band, the Wet'suwet'en, they have agreed to this, but there's a sub-sub group here that hasn't.
1: Well, that's right, because again, the... I'll say it again. Like the, the the rule of law is not clear. The 1997 Delgamuuk case that was established in the Supreme Court of Canada left enough ambiguity in terms of who has jurisdiction over these sorts of things that this is going back and forth, and there's no clear resolution. Now, I am far from an expert on the legalities and constitutional law and Aboriginal Indigenous issues, uh, but I can tell you, having been there. It is not clear on the ground, actually, who has jurisdiction over being able to sign a contract mm-hmm. and say that, uh, yes, we as a peoples agree to this. Because uh, First Nations, in plural, means that there is many, many groups. I think there's over 50 uh, First Nations just in British Columbia. And within those First Nations, there are different power structures, and it is very difficult and to... Really understand how all of this works.
0: Okay, yeah, and I, I get that, right? You're saying that not everyone agrees to the group that signed uh, the exactly. agreement. Yeah. Ex- exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah. we, well,
1: we are in an era where um, small groups of people, whether they're indigenous or whether they're a civic on, you know, Burnaby or or wherever, that uh, doesn't like a project, whatever that project might be, can band together and uh, organize a protest.
0: Okay, but that's, I want to hit on that word small, because mm-hmm. I, this is where I have the issue with the media coverage. I think it should be more balanced to represent all the voices, more representative sure. of the people that are for it and against it. So most of the coverage at the beginning of this week was just sort of focusing on these this group of people yep. and their issues, but not sort of talking about you know all the people that do support it in the area and trying to bring some balance. Here's an example you know, a lot of coverage of these protests uh, to support the people that were removed from the blockade. These protests had, some of them had 100 people, some of them less than 100 people. Mm-hmm. Um, meanwhile, there's been a lot of pro-pipeline protests, especially over the Christmas holidays here in Western Canada. Many of them were measured in thousands of people. We had Rocky Mountain House, a 1,000 people, White Court, over 1,000 vehicles, Calgary, 2,700 people. And they didn't get very much media focus. So I think when the media wants to show something, they should show the balance. Yes, there are people that are against this project, but also there are a lot of people that are for it, and we should try to share
1: the airtime. Yeah, I can agree with you that uh, we need to share the airtime more, but I also think that more effort needs to be put by stakeholders, including the industry, on really working with these communities on the ground, whether they're Indigenous or not.
0: It's a great point. And to come back to how this all got resolved, we did actually have the Coastal Link Group make an agreement, come meet with them, and now they have agreed to remove the barriers.
1: So that is actually what happened. We should never allow it to get to that, is, is my view. And I know that more can be done. And I'm hoping that as we go forward, that these are lessons that we learn, that it's really important to emphasize the on the ground community engagement as i said again whether it's indigenous communities or non-indigenous municipal communities and so on.
0: Yeah. We're in 2019 now. You know, people care about these projects. They, 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 they want to understand them. Sure. Um, we need more consultation, sure. we need more people involved. That's what sure. this that's what society's demanding. That's right. Okay, let's talk a little bit news on Trans Mountain pipeline this week. Now the NEB has issued draft conditions related to the marine safety and marine Mammal protection. So if you remember, we had the court decision there in the summer that said, you know, the approval was getting pulled back because there were two issues. One was around First Nations consultation and one was around this marine issue. So this is the draft resolution to the marine issue. And basically what they're urging is that there are some limits put in place around marine traffic because of the Orica resident Oricas in the area.
1: So it's not just about oil tankers.
0: No, it's not. And in fact, the interesting part is uh, the NEB initially scoped this out because they said this was broader than the project and they actually didn't have the jurisdiction to make rules about all shipping traffic. Um, But this is actually going to affect all shipping traffic and they need to reduce the noise associated with the ships and um, that will help. mean the
1: underwater noise?
0: underwater noise. And to do that, you actually go slower. There's been some pilots done mm-hmm. in the area this summer that by going slower, you reduce the underwater noise and disturb less disturbance to marine mammals.
1: So give us a sense of the numbers. Like how many ships go in and out of Vancouver? I don't even know. Is it... Uh I do know, so you're in luck.
0: (laughs) Uh, So, you know, it's a bit dated, but this is the only data that I've been able to find. It was part of the regulatory filings for the TMX. So it was uh, work that was done in 2012, but there was also a projection done into the future. But in 2012, there's about 5,500 large vessels traveling in the area, and only 60 of those were from the Trans Mountain Project. The forecast is it would be about 6,200 when the TMX comes online, and that there would be 400 tankers. So, about 6.6% of all of the traffic was projected to be coming from the Trans Mountain project. The rest would be other shipping things, whether it be like cargo ships or other tankers with refined products uh, or other products like coal and sulfur.
1: Okay, so let me try and uh, understand. So, we got 5,500 ships. Going in and out of Vancouver a year in 2012. Yeah. Right. And that number is expected to grow to 6,200, including all sorts of freighters and cruise ships and what have you. Yes. Right. In 2012, Trans Mountain tankers were 60, if the pipeline gets built, 408 per, per year. Right. So the fraction of tankers from Trans Mountain to total ships is going to increase, but the Department of was that the National Engine Board is is basically saying that all ships, freighters, et cetera, and otherwise are part of the problem here.
0: Yeah, including uh, they're putting some potential limits on the whale watching industry hmm. uh, because those guys that go out and chase the whales around are pretty dis- disruptive. Sure,
1: everything is disruptive uh, in the water with a big propeller. Okay, so what does this mean in terms of the timeline for Trans Mountain?
0: Well, this is a draft, and so there is some time to comment, and then there would be a final report in February uh, with some recommendations or conditions that would be added to the existing approval. So there will be more conditions, mm-hmm. um, and you know, not all of them, I guess, TMX could actually do unilaterally if it involves right. changes right. to the whole marine shipping.
1: Right. So what are we driving toward here? We've got the recommendations. And then at some point, there needs to be another ruling.
0: There would be some new recommendations, but then we'd still have the First Nations consultation that hasn't been done yet. Mm -hmm. And so we're still waiting on that. There's no date right now in terms of when that would wrap up. But that's the other piece of the puzzle that's needed. And once you have those, then uh, the project can get back on track again. Get
1: back on track with the shovels in the ground.
0: Okay, well, we've covered a lot of grounds on Canada and the oil markets and the outlook for activity. Tune in, by the way, for our next podcast, which is going to be on the renewables market. There's actually been a lot going on in Alberta, Canada, and beyond in renewables. So well, we wanted to look at 2018 and look back at it and, and talk about some of the major developments. So we're going to have a guest, Grant Arnold from Blue Earth, uh, yeah, which is our generator.
1: Yeah, looking forward to that one. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll join you next week.
0: Thank you. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.